The text for our meditation this morning is from that gospel reading uh, about Jesus calling Matthew and so much more. The beginning of the text, Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And then, as we know, Jesus goes with his disciples to Matthew's home for dinner, at which many of his friends were invited. He's criticized for this. And Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. On the basis of these words of scripture and in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has called each one of us to follow him, my sisters and brothers in faith. As we've been talking about, a full life in Christ involves relationships. First, our up relationship with God, then our in relationship with other believers, such as we do on Sunday mornings, and then relationships out there with those whom we know who may be close to us, but far from Jesus. And this last relationship may be the most precarious, may be the most challenging. For one thing, we, many of us at least, grew up hearing be in the world, but not of the world. And we read in Psalm 1, which really sets the tone for that whole book of the Bible, it says, you are blessed if you do not walk with the wicked, stand with sinners, sit with mockers. It almost sounds like the Pharisees, the religious leaders in our text, have it right. Don't associate with sinners. And yet, the clear command of our Lord is to go and make disciples, to go out and bring people in. And that's exactly what Jesus is modeling for us in the text. He calls Matthew tax collector, and he fellowships, has a meal with sinners. Now, no offense to any of you if you work for the IRS, but in Jesus' day, tax collectors were considered traitors and thought of as thieves. You see, tax collectors were Jewish nationals 
who worked for the hated Roman oppressors. They were required by the government to take in a certain amount of money, which they would have to, of course, give to the government, but they were allowed to collect as much money as they could. And everything over the required amount was theirs to keep. And so some of them had become quite wealthy. We don't know if that's true of Matthew. We could surmise that. But we do know that's true of the other tax collector whom we're familiar with from Scripture, Zacchaeus. He was quite wealthy. And the other group that the Pharisees mentioned, besides tax collectors, was sinners. Well, that was their word for anyone Jewish who did not stay 100% kosher. Someone who did not follow every single rule and regulation that they, the religious leaders, had set forth. Now, I don't know how many of you belong to the first group, tax collectors, but we all belong to the second group. We're all sinners. Paul tells us in Romans, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And the religious leaders fall into that category as well, even though they didn't recognize or admit that. That's what Jesus says. That's why I'm here. I'm here for the sinners. Those who are ill, spiritually ill, spiritually terminally ill. He came to bring healing. That's our word, salvation. Salvation is or has the same root as two common English words. One we don't use quite as much anymore, but it's the word salve, S-A-L-V-E, is how you spell it. Salve. What is salve? It's healing ointment. But the other one that I like even better is salvage. You know what it means to salvage something. You go in the basement or out in the garage and you find something. I wondered where that was, and it's covered with rust and cobwebs or whatever. And you think, I could use that. And so you salvage it. You, you rescue it. You save it. You put it back to use. That's what Jesus came to do and has done for each one of us. He has salvaged us, picked us up out of the junk pile of sin and death, 
and washed us in the waters of holy baptism, cleansed us and renewed us. He calls us to be his own, to follow him. He wants us to come up to a relationship with him, into a relationship with others. And that's all pretty comfortable. But then he also says, I want you to go out. Coming in, you see, is the word disciple. We gather to, to learn, to grow, to be strengthened in our faith. Then he asks us to go out. That's the word apostle, to be sent out. So he gathers us together to teach us, to strengthen us, and then he sends us out into the world. Go, make disciples. Me? Who, who, me? How do we do that? Isn't that the pastor's job? Or maybe there's an evangelism committee. We'll let them do that. You don't really expect me to do that, do you? I don't know what to say. I've never been trained to do that. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to lose my friends or alienate my family members. What if I say the wrong thing? We take comfort in phrases like, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. It's an interesting phrase. It's attributed to St. Francis, who never said that. <laughs> and it has a slight flaw. It's the if necessary. It's always necessary to speak. Paul in Romans in chapter 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But the truth of the phrase is that we ought to be preaching the gospel always, living the gospel, showing by our words and our actions who we are and whose we are. That kind of behavior gives us the opportunities to speak the gospel. I am reminded of a God sighting that someone turned in last week or two weeks ago, I don't recall. Something about this person that wrote this had prayed for a neighbor for years. And one day the neighbor started a conversation about faith. What the person who wrote the God sighting didn't put down 
was that obviously there must have been a relationship with the neighbor during those years of praying. There was a relationship. Otherwise, the neighbor would not have been comfortable bringing up this conversation. So that idea of relationships is so important. I had lunch with a friend recently, and we were amazed because he walked into the restaurant without any help. Amazed because three weeks earlier, he had had double knee replacement. And as we were marveling about how well he was doing, he said, yeah, he, he had gone to a therapist and she was so surprised how well he was doing um, with what he had had so far, the therapy he had had so far, the help he had had from his family. And he kind of casually said, yeah, it's a God thing. And it opened a conversation with the therapist. Some years ago, I heard the expression that the greatest or the best mission work every Christian can do is to go to church every Sunday. Really? Yeah. You see, if you get in your car, get ready to drive out of the driveway every Sunday morning at, what, 820, 8.25? <laughs> Eventually, one of your neighbors is going to notice. And they might ask you, where do you go? every Sunday morning and you get to tell them and it opens a conversation. One of the greatest examples of that was Christian people we met in Nepal some years ago. Nepal has in their constitution freedom of religion but the other side of it is it's illegal to convert. You're free to practice whatever religion you were born into. But no conversion, no evangelism. And there are Christians in Nepal, new Christians. They lose a lot by being that. But this group we met had wanted to build a church. They weren't allowed to build a building that looked like a church. They were not allowed to have a cross anywhere in sight. So they built a house in a relatively poor neighborhood where they could afford to buy the property and these neighbors didn't want them there. They did not want this Christian church there. That was going to cause problems. That was going to be a problem. And these people who at the time, whose average income was about $350 a year, all tithed to the church. And besides tithing, every Saturday when they worshiped, they had to worship on Saturdays. 
they all brought a bag or a bowl of rice. And after church, they would go into this neighborhood of people who didn't want them there and give the people food. And people would say, why are you doing this? And they would get to tell them. They weren't evangelizing, you see. They were answering the question. Our behavior, how we live, how we act, what we say, as Christians, can influence people, can open up doors, can open up opportunities to do as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to give an answer hope that you have when anyone asks and do it with gentleness and respect. Our behavior is to be out there in the world, but not of the world. That's what Psalm 1 is talking about. Not joining in with the sinfulness, not using the same foul language, not joining in the gossip, not tearing people down, but being the first one in the office, in the school, in the neighborhood to lend a helping hand, to offer a shoulder to cry on. Give that listening ear. To reach out with the hands and the tongue and the feet and the heart of Jesus to those who are outside of that relationship. Jesus calls us to be his own, and then he sends us out. When you leave here this morning, you're going out into the mission field, but you don't go alone. God is with you. That's what he promises. And he gives us the Holy Spirit who will bring to our remembrance all that he has said, will give us the very words we need to speak as we rely on him. So go. Make disciples. In Jesus' name. Amen. So who is it that you know that's close to you, but far from Jesus. You could probably make a list. Choose one. And then 
what can you do? How can you behave? How can you act? What, what is it about you that you can do to influence that person? We, we want to join groups where we see that people are enjoying them, getting something from them, feeling better about themselves because of it. We want people to say, I want what you have. What can you do to influence someone? Think about that for a few minutes as, as we listen to Matthew play.